For last time, uh, just to kind of bring you back up to speed, we started looking at the, uh, uh, the pre-church history Roman Empire. And it's really important to get a, get a mindset of how Europe uh, was set up here even before the church starts. And um, it'll be valuable to you to, uh, um, as we go through this whole study. One of the things about church history that's hard to do that I, I think I did it accidentally, but it really worked for me well, and it really works for me teaching it well, is there's so many things going on in church history uh, that it's hard to uh, just sit down and lay the whole thing out. And when I did it myself, I just it was that by accident, I think, more than anything else. I didn't have any real plan to it, but it worked out for me, is that you're going to find that we're going to go through a period of time and talk about one aspect, and then we're going to come back and cover the same period of time and talk about another aspect, then we're going to come back and come back through the same period of time and deal with another aspect. And when you get all of it together, you know, it, it really forms the picture of church history. But the real key to it is getting a good foundation of what's going on. So it's very important to understand that the, like we talked about last week, how the Roman Empire basically ruled the world uh, and all of Europe, and uh, and really the Middle East too. Uh, basically, all of the known world at that point was under the Roman Empire. Uh, we looked, if you remember, at the political groups that cropped up uh, at the first coming of Christ, and this will be pre-church history also. And we saw how these political groups, politi- political religious groups, we talked about them: the Sadducees, the Pharisees, you know, the scribes, the Essenes, and those people. Uh, how that they really uh, are not part of the original nation of Israel other than the scribes. All of these other groups are political groups and religious groups that came out of the uh, captivity of 606, and by the time Christ shows up for him 100 years later, have firmly established themselves as the leaders of the nation of Israel, and of course leading them the wrong way, and that's very important. And we talked about how that uh, the book of Acts was our was our really our foundation for church history, but the book of Revelation uh, was our structure for church history. Then you remember we talked about John, and I told you how that John is probably the most unique writer in the New Testament, if, if not the whole Bible. John, uh, you know, somebody asked me a question last week about First, um, Second, and Third John. And, um, you know, and they, they asked me that it looks like 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and they've heard me say it too, uh, is it, are Jewish books to the, written to the Jew, but at the same time you find a lot of stuff written to the church in it, and that's exactly right. John is the only man in the Bible, and he's certainly the only man in church history uh, that bridges both, both gaps. He's an original of one of the twelve. He also uh, goes into the church age. And he's firmly established in the church age uh, as uh, a writer of New Testament books. So you're going to find from his life and from his books a bridge between both. And it's very important to understand that uh, when you get into it. No other apostle uh, carries that designation. All the original 12 never wrote anything of significance to the church. Paul, who wrote significantly to the church, was never one of the 12. John is the only one that bridges that gap. Therefore, he's pretty unique. in understanding uh, our relationship as a child of God, yet at the same time showing you God's relationship to the nation of Israel. <clears throat> then we went into Revelation chapter 2, <clears throat> and we talked about the church at Ephesus, and that's where we're going to pick it up tonight. 
we started to talk about the apostolic church fathers and um, the concept of the fact that they have left their first love. And then we saw last week, which I think is probably the absolute key to everything we're doing in church history. If you fail to get what I'm trying to show you here, um, you'll, you'll, you'll never, you never put it all together. And that is the fact that the first deviation of the Word of God that was going to bring in all of the heresy uh, that later was going to damn the world to hell and put the greatest religious monstrosity on the face of the planet in operation didn't start with unsaved people. It started by God's men who deviated from the Word of God because of the fact that they, uh, they left their first love and began to uh, use terms and phrases that are not found in the Bible. And we talked about how harmless that seems. But the thing you've got to realize, and I try to beat this into your head all the time, you can never get out of the realm of biblical principles in what you do. You've got to stay in biblical terminology, and you've got to stay in within biblical principles, or you're going to get off track as Christianity has today. So let's pick it up in Revelation chapter 2 again, and I want to begin reading here, and we'll... <clears throat> We'll pick it up where we left off here. I think it was in verse 6. We'll see here. Or he says in 2.1, And under the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things saith he that uh, holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars. <coughs> thou hast borne, and hast patience, and for thy name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love." Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. And that's where we basically stopped last week, we, uh, uh, as far as the teaching is concerned. And I showed you here that, uh, notice in verse 2, that they're a, they're a good church. They're a church that tries people who says they're apostles. And that's very important that you see this. Already in the early church, we find phony people coming in, claiming to be something they are not. You're going to find that coming through church history that the devil's main tool in disrupting everything that God does and certainly fooling mankind is the fact that he imitates and uh, he camouflages things. He makes it look like the real deal through imitation. And, of course, if this is, again, why the, de the, the thing that the devil had to do, the thing he had to do was get rid of the Bible. <clears throat> Once you get rid of the Bible, you're free to do whatever you want to do because you and I as human beings have no absolute standard to judge it by. And then man left to his own uh, endeavor, just like Eve left to hers in Genesis chapter 3. We know how it works out. So you've got to understand and, and see that. And they tried those that say they were apostles, and they found them liars. And uh, it brings us up to verse 6, and this is where we're going to pick it up where we left last week. He says this, But this thou hast, that thou hatest, the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. 
Now, another thing you're going to see coming through these seven churches, and remember I told you that these seven churches start here at Ephesus, and they run the whole church age up here to where we're at right here. And uh, where we're at on this chart as Old Pass Baptist Church, I took the liberty to improve the chart by putting us right there. We're right at the end, right before the rapture of the church. And uh, what you're going to find here is you're going to find, notice it starts out saying here, the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And then we get a few more church periods down, somewhere around Thyatira or Sardis, you're going to find it again, but this time it's not going to say the deeds of the Nicolaitans. You know what it's going to say? It's going to say the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. You know why? Because in the early church right here, it starts out just being something that begins to be an idea, something that needs to be a concept that needs to be uh, taught, and people are adopting it. But in time, it becomes a doctrine of the church itself. Now, let's talk about the doctrine of the Nicolaitans or the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Nicolaitans is a compound of two words. Nico means to conquer. Laity or, uh, means the laity. And uh, laity in the sense of uh, uh, people in our church uh, that are not either deacons or they're not a pastor uh, they're part of the laity. Uh, laity means uh, that they're, they're not, they don't hold an office. It's the common, ordinary people that are in your church. And uh, sometimes you'll find people referred to as lay ministers. That doesn't mean that they lay around all day and minister. It means that they're not being ordained uh, or they're not a deacon. So they're a layman is another word that we use. Now, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans is simply Nico to conquer the laity. And what it means is that we're beginning to see, as all of this stuff begins to be formulating in the early church, we begin to see the idea being fostered, and we know who it's fostered by now. It's fostered by the, the uh, church fathers, and we're going to look at them. And I solved the mystery, Job, of Vasilides. I found it. Yeah, I found him. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't the way that it was spelled. I put that in there so many years ago, but I'll give it to you here in a minute when we go through. You know how I found him? Uh, uh, I found him by going on the Internet and Googling Gnostics. Really? Yeah. And when, and when they did that, a whole thing of Gnostics come up. And then I just went down and found the history of the Gnostics. And then it just went in from there, and it gave the history of the Gnostics in the first century to third century, and there he was. So it was spelled wrong, and it's pronounced different than I pronounce it to you. But uh, that was so many years ago. I had to be 25 years ago when I put that in there. So, But anyway. But you're going to find that we find the beginning begin to work. We find how that the early church and these apostolic church fathers begin, as they deviate from the Word of God, they begin to add to the aspect that there is a, a priest class that is going to be over the common man. And uh, we know that this is going to eventually bring itself to the place to the Roman Catholic Church where uh, you have a hierarchy, a religious hierarchy. I showed you Sunday when we went through the structure and the order of the New Testament church as God's spiritual government, how that there's two offices in the church, but those offices are not to be anything that you lord over people. In Christ's church, the office of a pastor, uh, in the truest sense, he's there to serve the people, not to lord over the people. People sometimes, and I know that there's pastors that do that, and, and that gives all pastors a bad name, just like, you know, all people get, you know, Christians get a bad rap because of the stupid ones. But the bottom line is simply this. 
in the New Testament church, uh, as I said Sunday, the pastor is to be a steward of what God has given him. And many times he takes a bad rap because he has to preach things and say things or deal with things in people's lives that are wrong. But the only reason he's doing it is not to lord over them, but he's doing it because if he doesn't, he's not a good steward of what the Bible says the principles are supposed to be in our life. And, you know, people take offense to that. So, you know, we start to see the deeds, the deeds of the Nicolaitans. The beginning seeds of a hierarchy of religious men in the church, they're going to elevate themselves to the place where they separate themselves from the common ordinary people. And now they uh, uh, have a, a priest class over the laity. You have a group up here and the masses underneath, and they rule over them and pretty much, uh, you know, decide their fate spiritually. And when you get into the councils here, uh, you're going to see how that works. And I told you before that the first council of Nicaea right here, that was a council that uh, they were going to decide all of what Christianity was supposed to be. And when Constantine called the council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., he called a group of pastors together that they were going to decide what Christianity was for everybody. There must have been probably... 40,000, 50,000, maybe 100,000 pastors in all of his vast kingdom. 300 pastors showed up or were invited, and those 300 uh, decided the spiritual fate and what Bible Christianity was going to be for everybody else. And that is where the doctrine of the Nicolaitans got to. And then, of course, it get exalted through the Roman Catholic Church, and it goes even from there. Now, Notice the Bible says that, that, uh, that God hates this. And that's very important because uh, uh, God has told us when we've been studying Romans chapter 13 and Romans chapter 12 that we are to treat everybody alike. I may be a pastor, but I have no more spiritual authority over you than any pastor should have given in the New Testament. I don't have a right to decide what you do and what you don't do. My job, as I've said many, many times, is simply to preach the truth and, uh, you know, guide you toward the truth, but you've got to do what you've got to do. But we see it begin to start very small and very unnoticeable at first. These things that I'm talking about are absolutely missed in the, in the, in the main writers of church history. When Philip Schaff writes his eight volumes on the history of the church, he's oblivious to what's going on in this particular point in time, as he is all through church history. He writes his eight volumes of church history like, like the God and the devil never existed. Uh, and uh, he, he never makes any, any bad guys. Everybody's good guys. When Philip Schaff writes, as when Newell writes, they think the devil died someplace along the way and didn't have any interest in church history. And boy, they make a very dangerous mistake, and that's why all of them you know, their church history winds up being an anti-church history as far as the Bible's concerned. But we start to see it happen very slowly. Good, godly men who really love the Lord enough to die for him who could, I mean, and who could qu really question their commitment to Christ. I mean, some of these guys, like we talked about last week, they died in the Roman arena. But when you start to deviate from the Word of God, that's all the devil needs to take it and build a religion down the line that's going to damn, what, 900 million people to hell in the next 2,000 years? 
And uh, when we see uh, a little later this thing begin to form up in the Roman Catholic Church, we're going to find that what the Roman Catholic Church uses to prove that they're right and to prove what they're doing is right, every time they do it, they go right back to the writings of the church fathers, and then they prove what they're doing based on what the church fathers wrote. The devil never misses a trick. And uh, I, I don't think I ever appreciated the devil as far as what he does and his ability to do it and never miss a trick like I did once I got through church history and I saw how he moved down through history. Uh, it's an incredible thing. I'm going to show you some things in time about, as we go through this, that just will absolutely uh, blow your mind about what the devil did and how he got away with it right under everybody's nose. Now, let me show you this in Matthew. Come over to Matthew chapter 13. Let me show you what's taking place here. And Matthew makes a prophecy about it in the parables. And it's exactly uh, what uh, happens here or what begins to happen here. And even though uh, Matthew's talking about the nation of Israel and how it began to break down the parallels between Israel and the church, I've talked about it many, many times. Look what he says in Matthew chapter 13, uh, verse uh, 33. Another parable spake he unto them, The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three meals, uh, measures of meal till the whole was leavened. Now that's one of the greatest little verses in the Bible that shows you exactly what's going on here in this particular point in time. We know from the Bible that the leaven will always be bad doctrine. We know that. Uh, we know I'll give you the references on that so you have it. Uh, it will always be a, ne- a reference to bad doctrine. Uh, Matthew chapter 16, verses 6 through 12. Galatians chapter 5, verse 9. And 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verses 6, 7, and 8. At the same time, you're going to find uh, that people, uh, people are likened to uh, wheat in the Bible, and uh, you're going to find that in Psalms chapter 78, verses 1 through 3. And uh, that's what they're talking about here is the meal. The meal is they've taken wheat and ground it and then made meal out of it, from which you can make bread or cakes or whatever you want to do. So the, so the leaven is bad doctrine. The wheat here is people, or the meal is people. And, of course, the woman here will be the great whore of Revelation chapter 17, 18, the Roman Catholic Church. So we have all three components here showing you exactly what I'm laying out for you in church history. What does she do? What does this woman do? She takes the leaven, which a woman took, and hid it in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. That verse shows you right there exactly what they did. They started to bring in bad doctrine, false doctrine into the three main people groups down through church history. The three main people groups down in church history, and you can make this just about any way you wanted it. Yeah, you can make this the Jew, the Gentile, and the church. You can make it that three uh, measures of meal. Uh, In church history in particular, you want to make that the Greek Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox, and the uh, Protestant churches that come out of the Reformation. Bottom line is simply this. The Roman Catholic Church, through her bad doctrine, which we're starting to begin to see develop right now by men, good godly men, deviating from the Word of God, that bad doctrine gets mixed in to the true church of Jesus Christ, and it leavens the whole lump. And you have all three institutions of of the church in Europe going by bad doctrine. 
You have the Roman Catholic Church, which is the bad one right out of the chute. She splits, or from her about 800, splits the, uh, uh, the, uh, the Greek Orthodox Church, and they start their own deal. Around out of Constantine's time, you have the Russian Orthodox Church that stays on the eastern part, and they develop their own stuff. Her bad doctrine infiltrates into all of those churches, and 300 years later, the Greek Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox, you can't tell them from the Roman Catholic Church. And then the third group would be the Protestant churches that come out of the Reformation. That would be your Lutheran church, your, your Presbyterian churches, your Anglican church, your uh, Episcopalian churches. All of those churches that come out of Rome during the Reformation, 200 years later, through the same system of bad doctrine, they're all leavened right back to the Roman Catholic Church. And if you went into your Presbyterian church today, the Greek Orthodox Church, the Russian Orthodox, the Lutheran Church, wherever you would go into one of those Reformation churches today, you'd be hard-pressed to think you wasn't sitting in a Catholic church. They all followed basically the same kind of stuff. They just change a few things because they're different in name. But this is exactly what we're talking about here. And uh, at the same time, when I start talking about this, I I want to... uh, I want to clarify something. Um, the Bible says in Revelation chapter 2, 3, that this church has borne and has patience and has, for my name's sake, has labored and has not fainted. Now, in every church period we're going to go through, and right now I'm focusing on how the bad stuff got started. But if you're not careful, or I'm not careful, I paint the picture that everybody was that way, and that's not true. We've got here, beginning with the church at Ephesus, you can see two lines. The line that we're talking about right now is this line down here. The true line that he says that you have been faithful and borne uh, the heat and, and taken uh, and done what he's supposed to do is the, the line that's doing what's right. God's always going to have his faithful servants in spite of anything that's going on that's wrong. And in church history, you've got to begin to lay out both groups and study both groups. But for the first part, we've got to lay the foundation of what went wrong, and then we'll come back and we'll see the foundation of, of who was doing right. But this is something that you've got to understand. God always has his true line of biblical people who stand for him, who do not deviate from the word of God. These men basically are the millions of common people who wrote nothing about anything, whose name were not recorded in any annals of the great church historians, but rather recorded in the annals of heaven with their, with their names written in their own blood. In other words, during this period of time, even though the men who are the noted men in church history, Ignatius, Polycarp, some of these guys that we've talked about, You see them, and we begin to see them deviate from the Word of God. What happens in church history, when they write it, is they they focus on these guys. They make these guys the super-Christians, so everybody thinks that these guys are really the guys that are doing the job, when in reality, they weren't. They were good men. They died for the Lord, and they, they loved Him enough to die for Him. But the real work was going on by the nameless millions of people who nobody ever wrote anything on that were standing fast with the Word of God when all of this heresy was beginning to develop. And we're going to go through and see them a little bit later on. But you've got to remember that. Yeah. 
when you talk about those guys that we listed last week, um, they deviated from the word of God, but they were still good godly men on the right line, correct? Some of them. Some of them were Yeah, they were. they were. They would be on the right line up here, but you begin to see that they began to deviate from it, and then this line down here, which starts to develop the heresy, to prove themselves to be the right line, steal off the true line by what they said. Yeah. It'd be a lot like me who was saved, loved the Lord, me writing a book or putting out some paper and making some analogy of something that uh, is totally uh, out of the realm of the Bible. And 20 years from now, <clears throat> somebody uh, getting all of my stuff and, and starting going through it, and, and, and saying, well, this guy really knew how to build a church, he knew how to do this, he knew that, and start following it, and then find what I put in there <clears throat> that was not right and correct, and then bring that right in with it, see? And uh, that's exactly what they did. They didn't mean to do it. They didn't mean to do it any more than I think Billy Graham meant to do it. When Billy Graham started on, he's a classic example, when he started out in the 1950s, I mean, uh, he would tear the paint off the walls when he preached. Somewhere along the line, some people got to him and said, look, Billy, we'll back you financially and we'll, we'll, we'll get you into places where you really want to win people to Christ. We'll get you in places, instead of just speaking to crowds of five or 10,000, we'll get you speaking to crowds of 100,000 or 200,000. Instead of just running around here in a little bus trying to do it, we'll put you on a Learjet and get you around the world. But the price of that was, Billy, you can't, if we're going to do that, you can't say the things you say the way you say it because people won't come to hear you preach, see? So here's a man who starts out preaching hell so hot you can feel the heat, and now he winds up, how many years later, not even believing there's a hell anymore. Now he believes that, you know, the Muslims are going to go to heaven like everybody else. What happened in that process was exactly what happened here. That's a modern-day rendition that you can put in the same thing. He starts out good, but as time goes on, he gets the pressure to reach people and to get things done, so he sacrifices truth and principles to get it done. You can't ever do that. You can't ever do that. And that comes because of the fact that good, godly men get, lose their perspective. Billy Graham would tell you the most important thing in this world is to win people to Christ. I would tell you that the most important thing in this world is to preach the truth. See? Two different avenues. Now, he can't prove his. I can prove mine. Say, how do you prove it? Show me anywhere in the New Testament where Jesus ever violated one of his principles just so somebody would get saved. The original term, my way or the highway, starts with Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I don't know if they had those bumper stickers on their chariots or not, but that's where it started. He basically said, you know what? You either do it my way, straight as a gate, and narrow as the way. He says, no man cometh unto God, except he comes through me. And he laid down the principles when he dealt with a woman at the well, <clears throat> when he dealt with Nicodemus, where whoever he dealt with, <clears throat> he never backed off on his doctrine. There was a rich young ruler that came to him <clears throat> and said, I want to follow you. He put him to the test. The rich young ruler went away sorrowful because of the fact that the, the price that God wanted him to pay was too much. Did you see Jesus running after him and revising what he just said so he'd follow him? Uh-uh. See? That's the problem with Christianity, and it starts right back here. And the problem is that we don't have any truth anymore to preach, and the ones that do have the truth or did have the truth, they won't hold the line with it. And, uh, you know, they, we get the idea that... <clears throat> 
you know, that if we, the more masses we reach, the more we get done for God, the better it is. God has never been interested in quantity. God has always been interested in quality. Uh, he'd rather have you win 10 people to the Lord and do it right and win 500 to the Lord and do it wrong. It's just that simple. And uh, the number one thing is truth. And that's what these guys begin to, uh, begin to, uh, uh, to, to get away from. So as we close the first period of church history, we see that the leaders of the church, good men, being caught in the trap of philosophy and education. It began to creep in. It began to replace the Word of God and the principles. You'll find that when Polycarp uh, and Ignatius make their, make their concepts, and one of them uses the word Catholic, that's a philosophical word. That is the classical Greek with Aristotle and Plato from the philosophers. That's not the common word that men would use talking uh, in the Koine Greek. They begin to get influenced by the system out there that is propagating uh, all of the stuff that was going on at that time that, that was trying to put Christianity into some form of philosophy. And we're going to see how that developed and how it even got worse just a little bit later on as we come through here. So as we close the first period of church history, which brings us up to around 200 A.D., we see the uh, leaders of the church uh, falling into the trap of philosophy and education as to the uh, losing their first love, the Word of God. And um, they, just, they just begin the, the thing that the devil is going to take and, and, and bring it all the way through uh, church history and wind up destroying the church. Remember now our first night I gave you the infallible cycle, man, movement, machine, and monument. We've actually seen the first church period start out Ephesus. The name means fully purposed. Here was the church that started out that had everything it needed. They didn't have to rely on four or five generations or like us, 10 or 12 generations of telling us what Jesus said there were actually people in this church who walked with him, who saw him, who heard him preach, who knew exactly what was going on. There were men in this church that knew Paul. Many of them would be won to Christ by Paul. Many of them were in their churches. Paul preached and started. They knew him. But they still lost their, left their first love. And it always happens the devil is going to try to bring something in that is going to, uh, uh, to, to destroy it. This is why in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, you're given one of the two warnings in the Bible that we as Christians need to stay away from. The one is over there in Timothy, and that is science falsely so-called. But in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, he says this, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Philosophy will always try, this is what they were, this is what they we're going to see is beginning to happen. You cannot put philosophy and Christianity together in any shape, form. You just cannot do it. In fact, the warning in the Bible is to stay away from philosophy because philosophy is basically built, as he said through here, on vain deceit. And vain and the word deceit. Vain would be your pride. Deceit would be the fact that you've deceived yourself and you're deceiving others. Because philosophy doesn't follow the Bible, it doesn't follow after Christ, it follows after the tradition of men and the rudiments of the world. That's what the verse says. Now how in the world any Christian could try to put philosophy and the Bible together and, and in the same concept uh, is, is beyond me. But you're going to see that's exactly what they tried to do here, and I'm going to show you some great 
Christian philosophers here in just a little bit. And uh, let me show you where we're going with this. Turn over to Acts chapter 4. And I'll show you where we're going with this. And this is where we're at today. And this is really what you're going to be up against. Now look at Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Here's what we're up against, and here's what started to happen back here. And it's happening all the way in the book of Acts, which is even before this. Look at verse 13. Now when they, and they will be the people down here that they're preaching to, the leaders, the religious leaders. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled. Why did they marvel? They marveled of them that they had been with Jesus. Now, there's the, there's the split right there. These guys were educated guys here. They looked at Peter and the boys as ignorant and unlearned as far as what they had been taught. But they were amazed by the fact that God had a boldness and they were getting things done. And the reason why they were getting things done is simply they had been with Jesus. And this is the battle that you find in the early church. You have the philosophers, you have the educators, you have the uh, people coming on who look at common, ordinary Christians, and if they don't have their education, if they don't have their background, if they're not steeped in the philosophy and all of the things of the day, then uh, you're ignorant and unlearned. And you know what? You'll find that same thing going on today. You'll be looked at, if you've never been to Bible college and been through the system, if you don't have a degree after your name, if you don't have uh, uh, the, uh, the, the prestige of being uh, somebody who's been through the higher education system of the Bible, uh, they don't really look at you as one of them. When you start to talk about something about the Bible or get into something deep in the Bible, they'll look at you and sneer simply because of the fact they'll look at you as ignorant and unlearned. And they never figure out that the fact that their education that they had could never get anything done. It was the ignorant and unlearned men, and the key was it, they had been with Jesus. That's the key. And uh, God has always used, from the world's standpoint, and I say the world, the Christian world, God has always used ignorant and unlearned men. He always has. He never has used educated men to the degree where they were educated beyond their intelligence. And that's exactly uh, what you find back then, and you find it today. All right, now let's look at the second period of church history. For that, we want to come over here to Revelation chapter 2 again. Pick it up in verse 8. And unto the angel of the church at Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. 
Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that you may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Uh, be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Uh, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Now this second church period here is called Smyrna. And uh, it'll begin to pick up the time period uh, between about 200 A.D. up to about 325 A.D., or right before the time period of the Council of Nicaea. This period will bring to light what we commonly call the Anti-Nicaean Fathers, and you're going to see that there's some overlap with these guys. We're going to talk about a few of them, but from a different angle, but they're the same ones. And, uh, and as we have stated previously in our study on church history, um, we're going to see the continued deviation from the Word of God. Now, the name uh, Smyrna uh, means mirth or bitterness and death. And from here on in church history, we will see the true line of Bible Christianity severely persecuted by pagan Rome. And then we're going to see one of the greatest moves the devil ever made in all history. And, uh, but first, let's look at uh, some of the men who make up the Ananiasian church fathers. And like I said, there's going to be some overlap here. The first one is a guy by the name of Irenaeus. I-R-E-N-A-E-U-S. He lives about 130 to 202. He's the Bishop of Lyons. That's a pastor. Uh, he began to talk about the fact that other books in the Bible uh, were also inspired, like uh, uh, the Shepherd of Hermas. He believes in baptism regeneration. He calls Rome the greatest and oldest church and is acknowledged by all and founded by Paul and Peter. And he also began to concept of baby sprinkling. You see, this is how far it's gone now. We start to see in the first church period, they begin to deviate from the Word of God. All of these bad teachings are beginning to be come up and be floating around, and guys are putting them into packages, so to speak, and they're, they're taking them, they're following them, they're writing about them, and now they're pastoring churches where they're actually teaching people uh, to follow these kind of concepts, along with the true line that's staying true to the Bible. We haven't got to those guys yet, but we will. But I'm just focusing on where the, where the, where the heresy comes in. We got a guy by the name of Clement of Alexandria. Uh, he lives about 150 to 215. He's called in church history the father of the Eastern Church. You've got to remember now that as this thing develops, and I don't have a map up here, but as this thing develops, Christianity as we know it pretty much got divided into two sections. It got divided into the Eastern section and then the Western section. And as this thing began to develop in the first 200 years, by the time we get to 200, 300 A.D., you're seeing this thing begin to develop, and Christianity in, in, in books that you read will be broken down in the eastern branch and a western branch. Now, when Constantine comes to the throne a little bit later on, he consolidates all of this, and this is part of his problem. It's been split, and we had some problems in here. The eastern side will become known in time as the Byzantine Empire. And uh, it's, it's known as the uh, Byzantine Empire, and that is where Antioch of Syria is. That is where the hotbed of New Testament Christianity is. 
And even though there's heresy floating around in the eastern side of that, that, that church, there's, that's where the hotbed of Bible Christianity is. The western side will be Rome. And you're going to begin to see how that these two uh, uh, formulate different ideas. The true Bible line holds true to the Word of God, but then in time, the east and the west come together, and they solidify their doctrines, and out of that pops the Roman Catholic Church. And, uh, but this is where you're going to find, uh, when it talks about somebody being the uh, father of the Eastern Church, they're talking about the Eastern side of, uh, of, the, of the Byzantine Empire. And uh, it's that, the head of that was back then was a place called Byzantium. Today it's known as Istanbul. It's in Turkey. Uh, when Constantine comes to the throne, he, renames, uh, he renames Byzantium a Constantinople. And the Byzantine Empire is at its peak during that time and up to about 1,000. And then when the Ottoman Turks come on, about 1,100, they rename Constantine, Constantinople, and that's where it gets the name Istanbul. So that's how that works out down through history. We'll get into all that a little bit later on. But uh, Smyrna means bitterness or death. And we have these Nicene church fathers uh, coming on, Clement of Alexandria, called the father of the Eastern Church. He follows now the allegorical method of interpretation of the Bible. And uh, if you've ever been to a Catholic church and talked to a Catholic priest, if you've ever been to a Lutheran church and talked to a Lutheran pastor or a, or a uh, Presbyterian pastor, it won't take you long to figure out what the allegorical uh, uh, interpretation of Scripture really is. It simply means that it doesn't mean anything. Uh, it means that it's all symbolic. Allegorical means there's no real rhyme or reason to it, nothing you can take hard out of it, but that it all is up to interpretation. They especially do this with the book of Revelation. And obviously the reason why the Roman Catholic Church has to make the book of Revelation allegorical, because if they took it literal, they'd be out of business because the finger's pointing right back to them. They are the whore of Revelation 17 and 18, so they got to get out of that. So that's what they do. But it starts with guys like this. Clement of Alexandria, who follows the allegorical method of interpretation. Where did he get that from? He got that from Plato, Aristotle, and Socrates, and the great Greek minds, who, when they looked at the Old Testament, that's exactly what they did, see? And the Greek empire had forged enough of of thought that uh, these guys, what they're trying to do, every one of them is trying to do this. We're going to see it a little bit later. Everyone is trying to take the great minds of the Greek Empire, Aristotle, Socrates, and Plato, and then take the teaching of Jesus Christ and merge them together. And this is why the Bible gives the warning about philosophy. And of course, you know what happened when they merged them together. Bible truth went out, and the pagan philosophers came in, and the Bible got destroyed. And that's why when the Bible was gone, they left their first love, it comes to the point where now people are making up. I mean, did you ever stop and ask yourself the question, where in the world do you go? Where in the world do you go to try to prove that you have to be baptized to be saved? I mean, where in the, where in the Bible do you go to do that? There is no place in the Bible you go to do that. I mean, there are so many pitfalls if you try to take that position. How in the world do they get away with it? You know how they get away with it? They get away with, do away with the Bible first. 
Once you get rid of the Bible, you can do whatever you want to do. And that's exactly what they did. How in the world, when you go through like I laid out to you on Sunday morning, how do you get out of that that a pastor is over you as far as the common people and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans? How do you get out of that? You can't. So you know what you got to do to pull that off? Got to get rid of the Bible first. Once you get rid of the Bible, you can do whatever you want to do. And that's what we're seeing these guys doing. They're, they're taking the teachings of the Bible and philosophy of the Greeks and they're putting it together and then they're coming up with their own ideas. And when they come to places in the Bible that they know got them dead to rights, then they come up with the idea of the allegorical method of interpretation. It doesn't really mean what it says. Your Bible is a literal book. I don't know of hardly anything in that Bible is symbolism. Everything in that book is dead on and means something. And to make the Bible an allegorical concept where it doesn't really mean anything and it's left up to the interpretation of, of the person that's reading it uh, or some scholar or some church father or some priest uh, is exactly what uh, they want to try to accomplish with it. You see, uh, uh, you see a modern version of this in any Bible study in any church that you go to today. You know what you'll find? Here's what most Bible studies are. Most Bible studies, you get maybe 10 or 12 people together, maybe 20 people together. You sit around in a circle, and you have a, a, a passage. You're gonna, you're gonna, everybody's going to read and study. And you know what? This person, this person reads it, and he reads it out of an NIV. This person reads it. He reads it out of living letters. This person reads it, and he reads it out of dead epistles. This person reads it. He reads it out of an RSV. This person reads it out of a New King James Bible. And then they sit around after they all read it, and everybody says, well, what do you think it means? What do you think it means? Well, I think it means this. And somebody else says, oh, that's really good. I think it means this. And at the end of the day, nobody said anything that means anything. All you've got is a bunch of opinions that mean absolutely nothing compared to what the Bible says. That's allegorical. And that's a mild form that you find today in, in every Baptist church in this city and this country. That is their mode of Bible study. They've fallen right into the allegorical method of interpretation. What do you think it means? Well, who cares what you think it means? What does it say? That's what it is. And of course, that's where these guys start and that's where it goes. And... Uh, he believes uh, in the baptism regeneration. He was a leader in the school at Alexandria, which we'll talk about in a little bit, after the death of a guy by the name of Pantanus, about 189 A.D. He's a Greek philosopher. He called, uh, um, uh, he's called what, um, he called what he believed uh, in, the, in spite of Colossians chapter 2, verse 18, he classified himself as a Christian Gnosticism. We'll talk about Gnosticism in a little bit. And, uh, and uh, that's what he portrayed himself to be. And we'll talk about that in a minute. We'll have a guy by the name of Tertullian, about 160 to 220. And see, this is how some of this stuff gets going. Tertullian is famous for his writings on his prayers for um, sanctifying water. And he was, he's famous for in his writings telling people how that you take water and you pray over it and you sanctify it and now it's, yeah, you guessed it, holy water, see? 
And in time, as baptism regeneration begins to float around, they just take the concept of baptism regeneration, and then they get Tertullian's concept that you pray over the water and make it holy. And the next step is when you get baptized in it, that holy water washes away your sin. You see where it starts? That's where it starts. You got a guy by the name of Hippolytus, 170 to 236. He writes for the early uh, uh, church fathers uh, of this time, and he follows the same line. I guess the guy that probably is the most important guy we're going to talk about, and we're going to go into him in great length. I don't know if we'll get to it today or not, but uh, we will certainly next week if we don't get into it today, is the guy by the name of Origen. He lives about 184 to 254 A.D. Origen is the kingpin. He is the one guy you want to remember uh, no matter who else you forget. Origen is the kingpin that leads to every Bible perversion in the world today. Everything that you see in every Baptist church, every false translation of the Bible, every heresy that's being taught in the churches today, and the destruction of the church through the devil taking out the Bible can be, will be, and should be traced back to one man in church history, Origen. He is the kingpin. And boy, when the devil begins to uh, destroy uh, the church through his imitation and his counterfeiting, Origen falls right into the whole plan of things, and he's one of the key pins in this thing. You got to realize that the devil knew that the way to destroy the church was, as I said, counterfeit and imitate. And he does this by camouflaging himself with religion. Of course, we know the Bible talks about him being an angel of light in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We know that uh, his ministers are transformed into ministers of righteousness. And uh, <clears throat> that's what he does. He imitates. And the first thing he has to do to pull that off is to get you out of the Bible. Now, let me tell you why the devil hates the Bible. Let me tell you why that everything that he's tried to do, he's always started with getting rid of the Bible. Did you ever notice that? You know the first time the devil shows up? First time your devil shows up in your Bible is in Genesis chapter 3. And God has put a plan in effect with two people called Adam and Eve. And God has given Adam and Eve instruction on exactly what he wants Adam and Eve to do. And when Adam and Eve shows up down through there and God gives them the instructions of what to do, when the devil shows up to counter that thing and to damn their soul to hell and your soul and my soul and everybody's soul down through history and wreck the plan of God, the thing that first words out of his mouth, which is the law first mentioned, the first things out of the devil's mouth when he wants to destroy everything that God did was, yea, hath God said, and then he changed what God said. That's the way it works. We get the idea that Satan in the garden showed up like a snake. You know, you see the pictures, you know, of Eve standing in a tree looking at an apple with a snake curled around the limb. We get the idea that he showed up in the aspect of, uh, you know, uh, with a horns and a pitchfork and a red union suit and a tail, and, and, and that's how he showed up. You know, that's not how he showed up. That's not how he showed up at all. I guarantee you. The Bible says that the Lord Jesus Christ came down and he walked with them every day and taught them every day. And that means that Jesus Christ had some form of a body that was pre-incarnate before he showed up in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
He showed up in a, some kind of spiritual body that he met with them, and they recognized who he was because of what he looked like. And I guarantee you, when the devil showed up to Eve, he looked exactly like Christ did when Christ showed up. See, how do you know that? Because you can put an NIV here and a King James Bible here, and one of them the devil's Bible, one of them is God's Bible, and when you close those up or you open them up at a glance, they look absolutely the same. Same black covers, same gilt letters, same words of Jesus in red, same concordance in the back, same maps you got, same verse markings and chapters broke down, and boy, when you first look at them, they look like they're absolutely the same. You don't see there's a difference until you start to listen to what they say. Eve should have known that that wasn't Christ and that was the wrong Bible study to be at when he contradicted what God had told her by his own mouth, given the words to her of what he told them to do. But just like people today, she wasn't paying attention. And the yea hath God said society has been around ever since Genesis chapter 3. They tell you it's God's word and then they change it from what it really is. And that trick goes back to Genesis chapter 3. And Eve fell for it just like, uh, and you do know that Eve is a female. You do know why that he came to Eve instead of the man, don't you? Because it's a picture, Adam's a type of Christ, you see. Adam's a type of Christ. Christ. Adam was not there when the devil came to deceive her. You know why the devil came to deceive her? Because Adam's a type of Christ. Eve's a type of the church. He came to her when Adam wasn't there because that's a picture of the church age when Christ isn't here and you and I have to rely on what he said. You know how the thing works? That's how it works. It's exactly how it works. All right, we, got, uh, we talked about Clement last week and he writes two epistles, first and second Clement. And in his writings, he starts again to promote the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, bishops over the lay class. He starts to give the idea that Peter was at Rome. That's going to come in handy when the Roman Catholic Church wants to put a church together. Then we have another uh, church father by the name of Barnabas. Not the one in the Bible. But Barnabas, uh, he writes uh, a couple epistles called the Epistle of Barnabas. And uh, this was, this was what, when Origen got his hands on this, he taught this was inspired, you see. And uh, it's written by a, a Greek philosopher, and it also follows the allegorical method of interpretation. And uh, that uh, the last uh, scripture in his, in his epistle talks about you and I winning salvation. And of course, uh, he falls right into the category of, of all the rest of the guys. Uh, the devil counterfeited and flooded the market with a lot of fake epistles. And uh, these guys began to continue to deviate, and it got worse and worse and worse. What they wrote got worse and worse and worse, and so the devil just kept the thing going. That's why, uh, if you uh, do a study on it, you'll find that your Bible has four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Let me show you how this thing works in a modern day. Remember when the movie came out here a while back about the uh, uh, crucifixion of Christ? I can't remember what it was now. What was it? Passion. Yeah, the Passion. Remember how that came out? Right after it came out, it hit the news that they had found the gospel according to Judas. Remember that? And that hit the news that the gospel according to Judas gave new light on the gospels. And now we find out that Judas wasn't the bad person that everybody thought he was. You see how the thing works? Now you've got a gospel of Thomas. You've got a gospel of Mary. You've got a gospel of Bartholomew. You've got a gospel of Nicodemus. Everybody's got a gospel. Those things were written and put out back there as, 
as the real deal when they were counterfeits. And you know what? The early Christians and the apostles and the early people in the first century, they knew what was in that Bible and what wasn't. And that's why you only got four, because they knew those were legit and the rest were phony. So you get out there today and all the scholars begin to tell you that there's other gospels too that add light to your Bible. They don't add one, one inch of light to that Bible. All the light you need is in that Bible. Those guys will tell you that because they want to get you out of that book and get you into those books. And that's how it works. And you know what the average dumb Christian does? He just goes to that thing, wow, did you hear? They found a gospel according to Judas. Judas wasn't as bad guy as we all thought he was. Boy, we've changed the whole perspective of him. Yeah, he was a devil, John chapter 6, verse 70. He was a devil, not full of the devil, not acting like the devil. He was a devil, an infiltration into the 12. A devil who wrote a gospel. Well, I mean, why shouldn't you take the gospel of Judas as a demonic gospel? You got the NIV, the demonic Bible, fit in there pretty good probably. So I look at it anyhow. Then you have the Epistle of, of Ignatius. He writes a couple. And of course, we talked about Ignatius last time, and he's the one that first used the word Catholic. And Catholic comes from the uh, universal aspect of the church, and that is the, that is the pagan classical Greek of Aristotle and Plato, not the Koine Greek of the common ordinary person. And then we find the fact that he also talks about himself being a son of the church. We talked about last week the Episcopal of, of, of Polycarp and where he talked about the church, the mother of us all. Then we have some things written that uh, come along the line like the Shepherd of Hermas. And uh, uh, it's written by a pastor of the Roman church about uh, 139, 140. And the Shepherd of Hermas is a godless piece of trash that teaches baptism, regeneration, purgatory, works for salvation. It's written in Latin and it deals with the sexual exploitation of a slave. And that gets all these things. And I'm just giving the tip of the iceberg. But this is the stuff that's been beginning to formulate around and, and make its way into Christianity. We have another thing here called the Didache, D-I-D-A-C-H-E. The Didache means the teaching of the Twelve. And it's supposed to be uh, the teaching of the Twelve Apostles, you see. And it quotes the Apocrypha. Uh, it teaches the, a triune immersion. In other words, you get baptized under the water three times. It puts the emphasis on special days. And now for the first time in the writings of the Didache, the teaching of the Twelve, oh, here it comes, a new word pops up. It's the word Eucharist. Eucharist. If you know anything about the Catholic Church, the Mass is built around the Eucharist, and the Eucharist is the key to the Roman Catholic Church. Hadn't heard it anywhere in the Bible, couldn't find it anywhere. I told you before, the Catholic Church is built on five principles you couldn't find in any Bible, in any planet, in any universe, uh, in the solar system. It's built on the word sacrament, not a Bible word. It's built on the word Eucharist, no word in anywhere in the Bible. You know where you get these terms from? You get them from the post-Niacene, or the pre, uh, anti-Niacene church fathers that's writing and putting in the heresy in it as the true body of Christ corrupts itself from the true word of God and gets out of it and starts adding to it the philosophical concepts of the pagans. That's where it starts. That's where it starts. Now, these writings of the apostolic and Ananiasian church fathers start to be gathered together, see? Now, you've got to keep in mind how this thing worked. <clears throat> when Paul wrote his letters to the church, here's what happened. I don't know if you know this or not. He wrote a letter to the church at Corinth, okay? Now, it's not one church in Corinth. 
It's all the people in Corinth are part of Christ's church. He didn't send it to one. It wasn't a first Baptist church of Corinth that it went to. It went to all the Christians in Corinth. And they got that letter and they read it. And then they copied it. And then people uh, held on to it. They recognized who Paul was, and they began to uh, put those things together. And pretty soon, he wrote other letters. They got, they, got, they got other letters from other churches, Galatians, Ephesians. Pretty soon, the body of Christ began to realize and knew what Paul was writing, so they began to put him in a collection. And they began to put him in, in, a, in, a, in a case where they, 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 they had all of his writings together which in time formed the New Testament canon of Scripture. The word canon means an orderly fashion of the, of the letters, a, a structured form. And so they, now they've got all of the things together that Paul wrote. And the true church knew exactly what should be in the Bible and what was not in the Bible. They, they, they didn't have any problem with it at all. And this is why you got a Bible today that only has 66 books in it. This is why the Catholics got a Bible that's got 14 more books in it than you got. This is why you'll hear guys out there talking about, well, you know what, I'm studying the, the, the book of Enoch. Well, I'm studying the Septuagint. Well, I'm studying this, or I'm studying the gospel of Judas, or I'm going through this, or I'm going through that. And the true church knew what was the word of God and what was not the word of God. And they kept the bad books out so that they would never get in, and then God used them to preserve the true Word of God right down the line with exactly the books in it that you have to have. And, uh, but these other guys, these Ananiasian fathers who were deviating from the Word of God, no, they were, they were taking all of these other writings, First and Second Clement, Epistles of Ignatius and Polycarp, and they were putting them and counting them as Scripture and, and, and as inspired as uh, the Word of God. And this is where the problem comes in. This is why down the line, when the Roman Catholic Church, as I said already a couple of times, when they want to prove their doctrine and prove their point, prove their church, and they can't go to the Bible, they have already set the concept that the other writings of the church fathers are just as inspired as the Bible. See how it works? So they just go back to those, and that's how they prove their point. And if you'd ever sit down and talk to a Catholic priest or you'd ever go talk to somebody that is in that kind of mindset and you try to question him on those things, he'll go back to the church fathers and you have a really tough time denying that because these church fathers basically believed everything that you believe. And these church fathers loved God enough to die for him in many cases. Wow. See, the importance of understanding church history. When I studied church history, I didn't look at it from the outside. I went down underneath the floorboards and took every bolt, every, every, every washer, every screw, uh, every, every, everything that made it work. And I looked at every piece, I understood it, and then I put it back together. And that's how I'm teaching it to you. You've got to know what's going on underneath. You remember the iceberg thing I taught you in our first men's meeting and the women's meeting. Well, that's the way church history is. You don't look at what you see on the surface. You've got to look what's underneath. That's where, the, that's where you really figure it out. And, uh, you know, I told you before, the devil is an imitator of Christ. He imitates, he counterfeits, and this is exactly what he's doing. All the way back from Genesis, the first word out of his mouth, yea, hath God said, and then he changed what God said. I told you it was 1 Corinthians. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13 and 14 and 15. Talks about the fact that he's an angel of light. Uh, I mean, uh, you're going to find that... Uh, uh, Christ and the devil in the book of Revelation. They both show up on white horses. 
Uh, Christ and the devil are both called God. Christ and the devil both called light. Christ and the devil are both called kings. Christ and the devil both have a city that are their brides. Christ and the devil both are called princes. Christ and the devil are both called father. Christ and the devil are both called lions. Christ and the devil are both inspire Bibles. Christ and the devil are both have children. Christ and the devil are both use the Bible. He imitates him in every facet down there. And the only way you can, you can figure it out is by knowing your Bible. I tell people all the time, and I've done it, it gets a reaction out of them, but it gets them to think. I tell them, I said, you know what? If Jesus Christ walked in that door and stood on this side of the pulpit, and the devil walked in right behind him and stood on this side of the pulpit, you couldn't tell them apart. We think the devil has horns, you know, and a pitchfork, and Jesus would stand there with a halo around him, you know, and, and, uh, and like we think he would be. And, of course, uh, uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's, that's not the right perception. Jesus Christ stood over here and the devil stood over here and you looked at them both and they would manifest themselves to you, you could not tell which one was apart. And you might think, well, I'd look at their hands and I'd see the nail scars. Oh, give me a break. Jehovah's got nail scars in his hand. Don't you know down there in Mexico every Easter, those little statues that bleed from their hands? They're called a stigmata. I ain't going to get it. No, the only way you'd know which one was which is when they spoke. That's what Eve got screwed up in. She didn't listen to what God said, and when he said it, he didn't say it the same way God said it, and she didn't pay any attention to it, and she got nailed. So when you've got a King James Bible with the absolute Word of God, and NIV that's not the Word of God, and one says one thing and the other one says the other one, you just go, oh, ho, hum. What's the difference? And you get screwed up. Oh, yeah. You betcha. All right, now there are 14 books called the Apocrypha. And these books are written along the sometime first coming of Christ and back in that 400 silent years in there. And these 14 books are written when the ruling spirit on this earth was the devil and the teaching was the Greek culture and the Babylonian religion. And these books are held as inspired by many of the, of the Antiochian church fathers. But the Lord himself, uh, over there in Matthew chapter 23, verse 35, uh, he told you again, and here again, this is what I mean when I'm talking about the Bible is the final authority of all things. Now, the Roman Catholic Church will tell you, and these early church fathers would tell you, that the Apocrypha were part of the Old Testament. And that's why if you get a Douay-Rheims Bible or you get a, uh, you get a, um, a Catholic Bible today, you'll find along after the last book of the Old Testament, you'll find the Apocrypha. And the Apocrypha, those 14 books, are part of their Old Testament. See? And somebody says, well, Bob, how do, you, how do you know those things? How do you figure that out? What do you do with all that? That's why the Bible is your absolute. Turn over to Matthew. I'll show you, I'll show you how Jesus himself, Matthew chapter 23. This is why I keep telling you, you've got to learn the Bible. And I know that's why you're here. And I know that's what you're trying to do. But I'm going to tell you, this is how you, this is, Bible's the only safe book you got. You can't trust anything or anybody, including me. The only thing you can trust is that book in front of you. Look at Matthew chapter 23. Look at verse 35. Now here's Jesus himself speaking. And look what he says. That upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel, under the blood of Zacharias, the son of Barcharus, whom ye slew between the altar of the temple 
and the altar. Now, you know what Jesus did right then? Jesus said, the blood of Abel and the blood of Zacharias. You know what he did by giving you that verse? He just showed you that the Old Testament, the way you have it in your Bible, is the way that it's supposed to be. Because Abel is killed in Genesis, that's your first book. Zacharias is killed in 2 Chronicles. That would be the last book in the Jewish Old Testament. Now, your Bible and your Gentile Bible, is your, your order of books in the Old Testament is different in the, uh, in the, in the Jews, uh, in their Hebrew Bible, but there's the same number of books, 39 books. And he's telling you right there that the order of the canon of Scripture runs from Genesis to 2 Chronicles, 39 books. Somebody comes along and says, well, here's 14 more books. On your way, kid. Somebody says, well, here's 14 more books that fit in the Old Testament. Get out of here. Jesus himself said that it's gonna, the blood is going to fall on you based on the Old Testament books from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zacharias. From Genesis to 2 Chronicles chapter 36, that's 39 books, there are no more. Those are the kind of things you need to know. Yes, sir? Wasn't also those books were not written by any of the Levites? Pardon me? None of those books were written by any of the Levites. All of those books were either written by Levites or they were they were copied by Levites. The Levites were the ones that had custodianship of the Bible. But the, the ones that were written in the 400-year period? Oh, no, they were not. Nobody knew who the Levites were. That's another, yeah. Uh, anything that was written b- between the Testaments and that 400 silent years isn't worth the paper that it's written on as far as inspired because God is not writing anything. The only ones who could, could do any writing in the Old Testament was the Levitical priesthood, the scribes. And, of course, there are no Levitical priesthood in the 400 silent years. Nobody even knows who the 12 tribes are. So anything written wouldn't make any difference anyhow. But that's good for me and you, too technical for them. Uh, the bottom line is that uh, Jesus himself told you there's 39 books. And it's things like that that I keep telling you, you've got to get back to the Bible as your final authority. Uh, during this period of time, we see also the God of education. Uh, moving hand in hand with the heresy already we've talked about. And all this will begin to uh, uh, take shape in and, and a little while, and you'll see the devil's plan very clearly. This educational system starts with the idea that, uh, of, uh, of uh, the doctrine of Nicolaitans, that there's a, a priest class over the common people. This priest class over the common people began to get all of the Greek philosophy and the Bible stuff that's being perpetrated in all the other books, and they start forming it into uh, all of what they viewed the Christianity to be. It leads to the next step that, uh, that we have to go, and the next step that we have to go uh, once we get somebody over the laity that's smarter and, and with God than they are, and they have all the truth that the lady doesn't have, the natural next step in church history will be for the rise of a group of men called the Gnostics. See? The Gnostics. The Gnostics were a group of men. The word Gnostic simply means knower. And a Gnostic was someone who uh, had a higher view of life and learning and a better relationship with God than the ordinary man. See why you have to have the doctrine of the Nicolaitans? You've got to get up over them to take them over, and then you've got to create yourself a position. That position is a Gnostic. And a Gnostic is someone who was a knower. He knew more than the common man. 
He had a greater relationship with God. He had a greater insight into the truth of God because he's compiling all this stuff. All of it was, was stuff from the pagans and all put together and all of the heresy that was being formulated. But he took the position, and the Gnostic position was, uh, and there was many, many things that they taught. We don't have time to go through them all tonight. Uh, that website's a great website, and it tells you all the dualism and all the things that they're involved in. It gives you a, a great insight what they believe. But the bottom line is, if you want a common, ordinary, and here's where it comes, the thing that men never learn from history is the fact that men never learn anything from history. The Gnostics back then would be the Bible scholars today, and that's, that's who they are. The Bible scholarship crowd today, I call them the Alexandrian cult. The Bible scholarship crowd today are a group of men who, because of their learning, and they know the Greek and the Hebrew, that they actually take the position that they know more about the Bible and God than you do, and that you are at their mercy because you haven't studied the language of Greek or the language of Hebrew, or you haven't studied the great uh, books and, the, and been taught the way they have. And uh, this is called the Scholar Society. And they actually, the doctrine of the Nicolaitan didn't die out in the first, second, and third century. It's very much alive today. Nor did the Gnostics. And the Gnostics today will be the men of higher education who tell you, you can't figure out your Bible. You don't know your Bible. You can't really have a relationship with God. So they take the position in your life to tell you what the Bible says. And those are the modern-day Bible scholars. And people just love it. I mean, people just gravel at their feet, just like they did to the Gnostics back there. You get some guy that's got a degree, and he speaks Greek, or he talks about using Greek words, and people are just amazed at it. I've always thought it was the absolute most asinine thing that you could ever do in your world, in the, in the world. Somebody says, well, I go to the Greek, and I get nuggets out of the Greek. Why do you want Greek nuggets when you own the gold mine? You don't need any nuggets. You got the gold mine in your hand. I have never found anything in the Greek that you could not find in that English Bible, but I have found a lot of things in the English Bible you can't find in the Greek. But that's beside the point. We're not interested in the Bible anymore. We're interested in our education. And uh, we're interested in the, you know, the devil's main problem when he tried to overthrow God back in Genesis 1-1, Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, the devil's number one problem was pride, you see? He, he wasn't satisfied with where he was. He wanted to be like the Most High God. He said it himself, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the side. I will be like the Most High God. And that's man's number one problem. The Gnostics were just following in line with their father, the devil, John 8, 44. Where the devil wanted to overthrow his throne over God, the Gnostics wanted to overthrow their throne above the common people. And the Bible scholars today do the exact same thing and want to exalt themselves through their position and what they know over the common ordinary man and want you to worship them instead of God. That's what the devil wanted. He wanted, in Matthew chapter 4, when he went to Christ, his whole thing was, bow down and worship me. See? And the Bible, the Gnostics were, don't trust your Bible, trust me. Bow down and worship me. And the Bible scholars today, you can't understand your Bible. There is no real right translation. They've all got mistakes in it. If you really want the absolute truth of God, you've got to go to the original Greek, and I'm the only one that's got it, and you don't have it. Bow down and worship me. See? Age-old thing. Been around for a long time. 6,000 plus years. 6,000 plus years. Now, this educational system that we're going to talk about here is a mixture of Roman, Greek, Egyptian, Babylonian, and other mystic philosophies and religions. Uh, 
And the men who hold these ideas and these teachings are called, as I said, Gnostics. And a Gnostic simply means a knower. A Gnostic was a man with a higher view of life and learning than the ordinary man. These men taught and believed that the answers in life were found in various uh, uh, places, uh, but that higher learning and education was the infallible answer to it all. And like I said, the Gnostic position was already against God, always against God in the Bible, just like it is today. And, uh, I mean, I don't care where you go. Bob Jones University, Liberty University, Temple Baptist Church, Pensacola Christian College, Midwest, Southwest, East, West, by Northwest, by Southwest, by Upside Down West, wherever you go, any higher education, if you go to Calvary Bible College, wherever you go, the bottom line is the Bible is going to be out the door and higher education is going to be the medium by which you get truth. And uh, the problem with that is simply this. The guy who's got the 20 years Greek on you, you'll never catch up to him. See, that's the difference between what we have here and what they got out there. If you're here for 20 years and you don't know the Bible better than I do, there's something wrong with you. You ought to have me beat on the Bible. You're smarter than I am. You're younger than I am. You got, you got more uh, strength and, and ability to remember things than I do. And uh, I, I, give you, I give you in, in you know, one year what it took me 10 years to get. And in 10 or 15 years, if you're not farther in that Bible than I am and know it better than me, there's something wrong with you. My job is not to keep you down. My job is to get you up. Their job is to keep you down because you'll never get ahead of them because their whole goal is to give you just enough but always stay ahead of you. My goal is to give you everything so you can get ahead of me. That's where you need to be. That's where you need to be. That's the process. That's my job. And of course, the Gnostic position has always been against God and the Bible. And uh, no matter where you go, um, you, you find it. The reign of the Gnostics, if you want to jump ahead for a moment and see this thing in perspective, the reign of the Gnostics starts about 200 A.D. It runs up to a, the beginning of the Roman Catholic Church, about 500 A.D., 400 A.D. maybe. Then the Roman Catholic Church takes over the hierarchy of the world. The Gnostics get either amalgamated in or they get killed, one of the two. Most of them go right in. Most of these guys that we're talking about now would be great Roman Catholics even in 100, 200 A.D., 200 years before the Catholic Church is set up. You know why? Because they are formulating the doctrines that Rome is going to take. So we see the Gnostics uh, of the the 2nd and 3rd century coming up to the place where they go into the Roman Empire uh, when the Roman Catholic Church gets started around 400 A.D. The Roman Catholic Church then becomes the seat of all knowledge. And Gnosticism ceases as we know it uh, because it's all contained now in the Roman Catholic Church. And the Roman Catholic Church becomes the knowledge light for all of the world. And then, of course, that runs from about 400 A.D. up to about 1500 A.D., And we know what happens in 1500 A.D. The Reformation takes place and the Roman Catholic Church loses their world grasp. And the door is kicked open for the next 400 years. And the greatest period of time in church history takes place, the Philadelphian church age. And now we see the true word of God going around the world. And we see what happens. But great contrast. We saw what happened when Rome ruled the world. And now we see what happens when the Bible rules the world. And at the end of the Philadelphian church age, or at least at its high point, probably three-quarters of the world has come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. 
And of course, uh, that ends in about 1900, and we see the Gnostics come back again. The Gnostics come back in the early 1900s through two movements in America, and they're all tied into the Jesuits, which we'll get into when we come on a little farther. The Gnostic movement in the 1900s starts in America with what we know as the Neo-Orthodox movement and the Neo-Evangelical movement. I talked about it Sunday. The Neo-Orthodox movement, or the Neo-Evangelical movement, was a movement to get the Bible out of the common man's hand and put it back in scholarship. They called it a reconstruction of theology. Their whole plan was, get the Bible out of the hand of you and put it back in scholarship where it belongs. And they did it. They did it. And that's why today, churches are defeated, Christians are defeated. That's why today, um, you find so much heresy being taught with the churches. Uh, It's hard to put it in the same parallel, and this is what I'm trying to get you to see, but it's not much different today in the churches than it is than it was back in the second and third century with the Gnostics back there. Oh, we drive cars now, and they rode horses, and we got houses, and they got little farms, and we got air conditioning and heaters, and they had fire and fans, I guess, but uh, nothing really other than that has changed. The big guys are on top, and us little guys are on the bottom. And in the world today, it's the Gnostics of the Bible scholars that tell you what the, what the Bible means and what it says. They write their little books, they get their little radio programs, and they get to this, and all the world gravels at their feet. And of course, that's the way it was back then. Two lines, two lines, two lines. You start to see this line develop down here. This will be the line of the Gnostics. There they are. Eusebius, Irenaeus, Origen, right on down the line. And, of course, the true line up here is where you and I are at. And as time goes on in church history, you see that line even getting wider. Time we're done with church history, we're going to see this line so far apart that you can't even, you can't even imagine how they could ever get together. They start out together back here, but they get so far out and so wide down here that it's, it's just... It, but it, with all of that, the average person can't see it today. You know why? Because it all is based on that book right there. That book is the key. And that's why in everything that I do, whether it's Sunday morning, Thursday night, or tonight, or coming through church history, I'll always tell you, and I've always told you, that that book is the absolute final authority for everything you're going to find out that's going on and keeps you between the white lines. Because the Gnostics are alive today just like they were back then. And the Gnostics will try to put you under the bondage of their knowledge just like they did back then. And most of God's people, basically, somebody asked me a question one time, how can a Roman Catholic church, how can a Roman Catholic church get away with all the stuff that they get away with and have millions and millions and millions and millions of people to stay in the church? Well, I'll tell you, how does the Church of Christ, how does the Church of Christ that was here a couple of months ago, how do they keep all the people that they got? When a guy can stand up and say, I'd like to say something, and the crowd and the, and the, and the Gnostics over there say, sit down and shut up. See? You know why people put up with it? Because human nature is such that we just love somebody to take care of our religion for us. That's why. Why wouldn't you want to be a Catholic? You can go sin all day, do all you want, sin all week, fornicate all week, drink all week, and then go get absolution on it on Saturday night, Sunday morning, and man, you're good to go for the next week. I'd do that too. I remember one time I told you last week about the John the Baptist head. I think it was Thursday night, I guess I told you that. I remember going into a Catholic uh, church one time, and, and they had a place where they sell all their religious junk in there. And I walked in there, and, and I said, 
what are these things? They look like dog tags. And she says, those are scapulas. And I said, well, what's a scapula? She says, well, if you have these on and when you die, you have a 75% chance of going to heaven because they've been blessed. Well, me being an unsaved who could care less, just figuring the odds, I said, well, good, I'll take two of them. I figure if one of them is 75%, two of them be 150%, I'm in, man. That's how I did it. That's just the way it is, folks. Just the way it is. The Gnostics are still around today, and uh, they all keep just doing the things that they did. Well, we'll hold up there tonight and it's 8 o'clock and uh, give you enough to think about and work on. If you haven't given Joe over here your uh, email address so he can send you the church history stuff, uh, give it to him tonight. Otherwise, quit whining about it to me. And uh, get it to him so he can get it to you when he gets it done. And uh, we'll... Uh, third things here and get it going. Thursday night Bible study. We're back here ready to rock and roll and get everything up and